Uh, feel free to continue your conversations after the service, please. Today's New Testament reading comes from 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. If you want to um, flip to that in your Bibles. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Ooh, I'm on. <laughs> <coughs> Morning, everyone. Uh, smooth transitions. Um, if we've not met, my name's Nathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege of preaching this morning uh, this passage that Kayla just read for us so well. Uh, we're in a, uh, the middle of a series that we've been doing on biblical stewardship where we are thinking about what to do with what God gives us. Uh, week one, uh, Darren helped us, think, helped us to think about time. Uh, week two, uh, Sam did like a whole Bible theology, a biblical theology of wealth and possessions. Week three, we looked at the... Uh, danger of storing up treasure for ourselves and not being rich toward God. Last week, we looked at the issue of contentment. This morning, we are going to be in this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, if you are new here or if you just don't have a Bible with you at the moment, I want to strongly encourage you uh, to get a Bible. It's not like, you know, go out to the shops and buy one. There are Bibles at the back of the room there. Uh, grab one of those Bibles um, don't be embarrassed about getting up and, and, and getting that if you need to, because I promise uh, this is going to make more sense and you'll be helped if you have a Bible open in front of you. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We ask in this moment that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In early September, I was at the National Conference of the FIEC. The FIEC is just the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches of Australia. It's the denomination or, or fellowship that we're affiliated with as a church. And one of the main speakers there was a guy called John Anderson. You might know him or heard of him, he, he is the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. As part of one of his talks, he mentioned the fact that he now hosts a podcast called Conversations with John Anderson. I've been listening to some of the episodes. Uh, over the years, he's uh, had all kinds of guests from uh, movie stars like Matthew McConaughey to uh, intellectuals like the Oxford mathematician and professor John Lennox, uh, to the British comedian John Cleese, who you might know from uh, Faulty Towers or Monty Python's The Life of Brian, or you, if you're a bit younger, uh, you might know him as Nelly Headless Nick from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Anyway, as they're having this conversation together, at one point, Cleese said, what fascinates me about the rich people is that they never have enough. And, and then he talked about this, this conversation he had with a rich friend of his from Santa Barbara. And he asked this rich friend, uh, why, why are rich people so greedy? 
And his friend said, well, you've got, you've got it wrong, actually. You see, people are rich because they're greedy. Now, what struck me about Cleese's comment was not that in his mind, he thinks that the reason that every single rich person on the planet is rich is because they're greedy. I actually don't think that's true. So, so if that was true, you would expect Paul to say here in this passage, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to stop being greedy. But he doesn't say that, notice. Because he doesn't draw a straight line between being rich and being greedy. What struck me about his comment was that in his mind, the rich is a category that he's not in. Uh, he's been divorced three times. His last divorce cost him an estimated 12 million pound. And if the internet's anything to go by, you can't always trust the internet, of course. So let's say he's worth one-tenth of what the internet says he's worth. If that, if that were true, he would still be a very rich man. And yet, again and again, as they're having this conversation, he kept referring to the rich people as this category of person that doesn't include him. When Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, I think the natural inclination of all of our hearts in this room is to switch off. Because we, we, we naturally think like John Cleese. We, we naturally think, yes, there are the rich, but that's a category of person that I'm just not in. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I uh, previously did some labouring work for a building company in Melbourne that specialised in high-end, architecturally designed residential properties, which just means they built really flash, really nice homes in the richest suburbs in Melbourne. Uh, one day, this will give you another idea of the kind of work I was given, one day I was told to go to a client's house and to clean up their garage, a client that they'd uh, previously renovated their place a couple of years ago and they sent me over to, to clean up uh, their, their garage. Turns out when I got there that the home was owned by uh, the grandson of Australia's first ever billionaire. And when I got there, it was pretty clear that I wasn't there just to clean out rubbish. Uh, there were lots of really nice things in the garage, including some very nice furniture. So I was literally given a, a mallet and told to smash up this furniture so that I could fit it into a trailer and take it to the tip. So I got through uh, this really nice uh, custom-made TV unit that I don't even think would have fitted in my lounge room. And then I eventually said to my boss, Dave, I said, listen, oh, this is crazy. I don't think we should be smashing up furniture like this. I thought I could just take a photo of, of the furniture, put it on Marketplace, and I would probably earn more in an afternoon than I was going to earn off him in an entire week. So when I read, as for the rich in this present age, my mind naturally goes to people or situations like that. Or at the very least, I think our minds go to people around us who we at least perceive to be further ahead of us than financially. So you could earn 60 grand, but you wouldn't be rich because you know someone at work who earns 100 grand. But you could earn 100 grand and you wouldn't think that you're rich because you know someone else who earns like 130 grand. You could own a really nice home in Pimpama, but you wouldn't consider yourself to be rich because you know someone who owns a really nice home at Paradise Point. Do you know, Australia doesn't actually have, I don't think, an official poverty line. But most organisations put the poverty line somewhere between $450 to $500 a week for a single person 
without any children. So if you're single, you don't live at home with your parents, and you earn between $450 and $500 a week, you are considered here in Australia to be living on the poverty line. If you earn 60 grand a year, according to the ATO, you're in the top 50% of earners in the country. If you earn 100 grand a year, you are, according to the ATO, in the top 20% of earners in Australia. If you earn 130 grand a year, you are, according to the ATO, in the top 10% of earners in this country. But here's the thing, if you zoom out just from this country and think globally, the average Australian household has just under four times the net worth needed to place an individual in the top 10% of the richest people on the planet. So the net worth of the average Aussie household is 528,000 US dollars, which means that in terms of personal wealth or household wealth, on average, we are the third richest country in the world behind only Luxembourg and the United States. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, I am not arguing that every single person in this room, without exception, is rich. I obviously don't know you all, I don't know all of your situation, I'm not arguing that there's no such thing as relative poverty here in Australia, clearly there is. What I am saying is that I would rather be poor in Coomera than Kolkata. And most of us, at least from a global perspective and certainly from an historical perspective, are probably much richer than we realise. But here's the thing, you, you actually don't need to nail down or, or neatly define who exactly the rich are in this passage to really understand what's going on. Here's why. Uh, everything that Paul says about the rich in this passage is said of all Christians somewhere else in the New Testament. So, so the, the, the way I think to appreciate this passage is not to try and narrow down very closely who exactly fits into this category of the rich, but to ask why. That is, why does Paul say the things that he says here to the rich? See, if you come at the passage with that mindset, you soon realise that at least in, in Paul's mind, there are real temptations and particular opportunities for good that can come to a person by virtue of the fact that they're rich. And so you see, what Paul's doing in this passage, he's writing like a good pastor, he's being a pastor. He is counselling and commanding the rich on how to master the art of living richly. Before we dive into the passage, I want to say just, just three things to kind of put it in its context within the letter of 1 Timothy. Okay, so three things. Firstly, Paul tells us the whole reason, the whole purpose for his writing this letter to Timothy back in chapter 3, verse 14, if you look back there. So just by way of background, as you're finding it, Paul planted this church in Ephesus uh, during his second missionary journey. Years have now passed. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to combat a problem of false teaching. And he says this about his reason for writing the letter. He says, verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, here's the purpose, if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So one of the main emphases throughout the letter is to show how belief in Jesus ought to work out in concrete behaviour. 
So that means if you said to Paul, yes, I have faith in Jesus, but my belief in Jesus doesn't have anything to do with what I do with my bank account, Paul would say, I think you are either unconverted or you are unclear about what it means to have saving faith in Jesus. Second, in the verses just prior to our passage, notice, Paul has just spoken about the coming judgment. So look back up at verse 13. He gives this charge to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so notice, Paul's giving Timothy a charge. But now look at this passage. He's not charging Timothy... He's telling Timothy how to charge the rich. In other words, Christ is coming, judgment is coming, riches don't change that reality. You can't buy your way out of that reality and so you need to learn how to use your riches in light of that reality. Third, notice the letter actually feels like it could finish in the verses just prior to this verse, or these verses that we're looking at this morning. So look at, we'll pick it up at verse 16, but it feels like it could finish at verse, uh, 15 rather, we'll pick it up at, but it feels like it could finish at verse 16. So look at verse 15, he, speaking about Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion, amen. And then you would expect, I think, Paul to go down to uh, verses 20 to 21, say what he says there, wrap it up and close the letter. But instead, in between, you get these three verses where he's addressing the rich. Why? Well, remember last week, he warned about the dangers facing those who desire to be rich. But he didn't say anything about how you are to live if you actually are rich. That's what he's doing in these three verses. I have five points. Don't be afraid, Uh, they're shorter than usual. Um, But to understand the five points... You need to look carefully at the passage. I'm not thinking context now, we're just looking at the passage itself. I just want to make a couple of observations about the passage before we work our way through it. So, So look at verse 17 and notice that Paul's clearly addressing the rich, but there's a qualification notice. It's the rich in this present age. Now look down at verse 19. Notice he talks about storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, riches in this age do not guarantee that a person is going to enjoy the rich life that God has for us in the age to come. Riches in this age do not automatically transfer across to the age to come. In fact, Riches in this age can produce in a person things or be used by a person in ways that actually make it harder for them to take hold of that which is truly life, that is eternal life, life never-ending, life that stretches beyond the grave and goes into eternity, the life that Jesus came to give us by giving up his own life. There's one main command in this passage, it's there in verse 17, look there, it's the command to charge literally means to order or to instruct or to command. 
But then under that main command, there are five subordinate commands. So don't be haughty. Don't place your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Do good. Be rich in good works. And be generous and ready to share. They're the five subordinate commands. So this is what we who are rich in this present age are to avoid or do in order to store up treasure for ourselves in the age to come so that we might take hold of that which is truly life. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to walk our way through the passage looking at the five commands and then I'm going to draw out or just make two pastoral observations from verse 19. So here we go. Number one, don't equate wealth with worth. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, literally arrogant or proud. See, one of the dangers when you have wealth is you can start to equate wealth with worth. That is, you can start to believe that because you have more wealth than a person, you have more inherent worth than them. Think about it. If if that's your thinking, if you think, if my worth as a person increases with my wealth, well then, of course, when you come across somebody who has less wealth than you, then the natural inclination of your heart is going to be to treat them like they have less worth than you. And if you do that, you will interact with with them in ways that are arrogant, proud, haughty, When the Queen died uh, last year and tributes flowed in, I think one of the loveliest stories came from a guy called Dick Griffin, who was the Queen's personal bodyguard or or police officer for 14 years. See, every August, uh, over the summer holidays, the Queen would holiday uh, or in the Scottish Highlands at at their Balmoral Castle. So one year she was there and uh, she went out for a walk like she often did and, and for a picnic and she came across two American tourists. And they started to chat together. It was very obvious that they hadn't recognised that it was the Queen. And so they're, they're, they're talking and um, chatting away and they, they tell the Queen about where they've been and where they're going and where they're from. And sure enough, they ask the Queen, well, where are you from? Where do you live? Uh, and she, she says, well, I, I live in London, but I've just got a holiday house the other side of the hills there. Um, they say, well, well, how long have you been coming here for? And she said, well... I've been coming here, you know, nearly all my life, ever since I was a little girl, over 80 years. And, and, and Dick Griffin says, you can see the kind of cogs in their minds turning over, and then eventually one of them says, well, if you've been coming here that long, you must have met the Queen. <laughs> and quick as a flash, she says, well, I haven't, but Dick here meets her regularly. <laughs> and, and before... Before he could do much of anything, one of the tourists had given the Queen their camera, the other had put their arm around Dick, and he was, he, they were, they'd asked the Queen to take a photo, so they, they took a photo, uh, then they swapped over, uh, he insisted that they get a photo with the Queen, but she never let on who she was. And they continued to chat, they walked away, they, they waved, and then the Queen said to Dick as they walked away, she said, oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they get back to America and they show their family and friends the photos and someone hopefully recognises who I am. (laughs) I think that one of the reasons why over half the world watched the Queen's funeral, why she was, generally speaking, so loved, 
was that for all her wealth, she never seemed to treat people like she believed that they had, as a person, less inherent worth. When you have wealth and you start to equate that wealth with worth, it's easy, very easy, to start to think about and to relate to others who have less than you arrogantly. Hence, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Number two, keep the location of your hope in the right place. As for the rich in this present age, verse 17, look there, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now think about it, there are all kinds of reasons, good reasons, why you should not place your hopes in your riches. For example, we all know, just experientially, that is, we have all experienced this in our own lives, we all know experientially that riches don't actually satisfy. We know that. So just think about the last thing, you, you think about the last house you bought, or the last car you bought, or the last phone, or, or watch, or you know, think about the last outfit you bought. You put it on, your life can feel like it's, it's better. You can start to feel like fuller, more satisfied as a person. But whether it's a week or a month or a year, do you ever notice that the feeling just never actually lasts? Back in the 40s, Rita Hayworth was one of the world's most famous people. She was one of the world's leading actresses. She once famously said, men go to bed with Gilda, they awake with me. You see, Gilda was one of her most famous parts. What she was saying is that men would often dream about what it would look like to be in a relationship with Rita Hayworth, but they were actually imagining Gilda. It wasn't reality. And then, you see, even if they got their dream, they would eventually wake up to the unpleasant reality that they found the situation, that a relationship with it, less satisfying, less fulfilling than they dreamed. If you place your hopes in riches, then even if you get your dream, even if you get riches or what riches can provide, you are eventually going to wake up to the unpleasant reality that riches are actually less satisfying and fulfilling than you dreamed. Why? Well, just think two weeks ago, Jesus says, our life, one's life, does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Life is found, he says, in, in me. I have come, John 10, that you may have life and have it to the full. But notice carefully, it's not, Paul says here, he doesn't highlight the dissatisfaction that comes with putting your hopes in riches. Notice that. What he highlights is the foolishness of putting our hopes in riches because they are so uncertain. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You see, in a fallen world with fires and floods and GFCs and ultimately death, the only thing that's certain about our riches is that we won't always have them. I read recently uh, a story about John uh, Wesley, who one day was invited to go and visit uh, the estate of this very wealthy man, and so he went over there, 
And they spent most, ha- most of the first half of the day riding around on horseback, just, just observing, looking at this vast estate, but they only really saw just a, a, a small portion of it. It was so large. And then later that night, uh, Wesley and this guy are sitting down to dinner, and the guy says very proudly, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley said to him, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this behind. There's actually a lot of evidence now, including studies from the Great Depression in the 30s, um, from the Asian financial crisis in the end of the 90s, um, the GFC in the early 2000s that show that whenever we have a large economic downturn, one of the things that inevitably happens is that suicide rates rise. Why? Well, because when a person places all their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, and those riches then go, it's very hard to keep living without hope. It's hard for those of us who live here in Australia where there's so much material prosperity to keep the location of our hope in the right place. It's hard, Jesus says, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because when you have riches, the more you have, the more inclined you are to hope in it. It's easy, actually, for the rich in this age to start to think that it's actually their riches that provide them with everything to enjoy. Paul says that's not true, actually. Do you notice that in the passage? Verse 17, charge the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who, notice this, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That everything includes your riches. Does that surprise you that Paul would say that to the rich, that one of the purposes that God has in giving you the things that he's given you is your enjoyment. That the part of how you are to use the things that God has given you is you're to enjoy them. That it's not wrong to enjoy a nice meal. You don't have to feel bad because you drive around in air-conditioned comfort rather than walking everywhere on the Gold Coast in all this hot, humid, muggy weather. Though you might get there just as quickly if you are walking given the traffic here. It's not wrong to enjoy sleeping with a roof over your head. God provides us richly with everything to enjoy. But here's the thing, so much of the Christian life is about learning to enjoy what God gives us in the way that God intends. You say that again, so much of the Christian life is about learning to enjoy what God gives us in the way that God intends. So, for example, sexual intimacy is a good gift from God. Our culture thinks that the maximum way for you to enjoy sexual intimacy is to detach it from God's purposes for the covenant of marriage, to detach it from the security and blessing of the covenant of marriage. Sex, gender, is a good gift from God. But our culture is is so, so focused on rejecting the very obvious fact that God has made us in one of two binary categories, male or female, that they cannot rejoice in God's good purposes for it. Authority is a good gift from God, 
But our culture thinks it kills joy rather than creates it because it distorts authority, it distorts God's purposes for it, it makes it about exploiting others rather than serving them. Think about it, our politicians are called ministers, servants. And yet so often we don't feel like it's us that they're really serving. God provides us richly with everything to enjoy, including our riches, but our culture believes that the maximum way to enjoy money and possessions is to be self-centered and self-indulgent, to think primarily about me and my own personal comfort. So notice very carefully that once Paul is instructed Timothy to charge the rich to keep the location of their hope in the right place, that is, to keep it the location of their hope not on their riches but on God, he now begins to flesh out what it looks like to enjoy the things that God gives us in the way that God intends. That's what he's going to do in the next three commands. Number three, be committed to doing good. So one of the ways we are to use our riches is with an eye to doing good to others. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, verse 18, to do good. So, of course, our, our doing good here includes the use of our riches. But I actually think that Paul is being intentionally more broad than that. He is speaking more broadly than that. And what he'll do in the next two commands after this is he's going to increasingly kind of narrow in to focus explicitly on wealth and possessions. For example, our membership commitment says, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church and the spread of the gospel through all nations in a manner that reflects God's generosity to us in the gospel. That's part of how we as members of this church are committed to doing good to one another. If you're a member and you're familiar with the membership commitment, which you will be if you're a member, you'll know that that is not the totality of how we are committed to doing good to one another. It's the same here. I had growing up uh, friends who, I still have friends, but um, growing up I had friends who have uh, known the pain of having a dad who's been happy to give them things, but that's about it. Very little time, very low low on relationship. It's easy in this culture to be a Christian, to come along to church, to give a bit, and that's about it. Very little time, very low on relationship. Paul says, Timothy, in the household of God, charge the rich to do good. They're to do good with their treasures, yes, but they're to do good with their time and their talents, their gifts too. Number four, strive to be rich in the right way. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, verse 18, to be rich in good works. So notice very carefully, Paul is commanding the rich to be rich. So in other words, you can be rich in this present age and not be rich in the way that God matter, in the way that matters most to God. Part of what Paul's doing here, I think, is he is redefining how you and I are to desire to be rich. So remember back up in verse 9, Paul wrote, 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Don't desire to be rich, Paul said. You desire to be rich, you might destroy and ruin your life. Now, Paul says, here's the way you are to desire to be rich. You should be rich in good works. Think about it. If you strive to be rich in good works, then you'll use everything, including your riches, to be rich in good works. I just want to say, um, as one of the pastors here, I can look around the room right now and see a lot of rich people. I'm not talking about your bank accounts. I, I mean rich in the right way. And I personally, and I, I'm sure the other pastors feel this as well, I, I feel rich to have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. Number four, strive to be rich in the right way. Five, be generous and ready to share. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, verse 18, to be generous and ready to share. So, God provides us richly with everything to enjoy and part of the way that you are to enjoy them is to share them and give them away. Uh, there's a guy, um, Brian Rosner, he's a New Testament scholar, he's down in Melbourne. He wrote a book in the early 2000s called Beyond Greed. And at one point in the book, he points out that in the first couple of centuries, Christians were known primarily for three things. They were known for their exclusive worship of the true gods, they didn't go around worshipping idols. They were known for their sexual purity, so they didn't participate in like cult prostitution, they kept the marriage bed pure, they weren't known to be adulterers. And thirdly, they were known to be those who were generous with their possessions. Listen to what he says. In the early church, the sharing of possessions was just as central to what it means to be a Christian as the exclusive worship of the true God and the matter of sexual purity. Listen very carefully to this. Christians in the first or second century would have thought it would have been rather just as perplexed to find a confessing Christian who worshipped idols or was openly adulterous as they would have been to meet one who refused to share his or her possessions. In around AD 150, there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Aristides. Um, he wasn't a Christian, he converted to Christianity. And then after his conversion, he wrote a letter to the emperor to try and persuade the emperor to, to help the emperor to see that Christianity, in essence, was very good for society. Here's what he wrote. Just notice, notice his description of, of Christians in the second century. Here's what he wrote. O king, he who give, has, rather, gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And whenever one of the poor passes from this world... Each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O King, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is their manner of life. Verily, this is a new people, 
and there is something divine in the midst of them. Isn't that remarkable? As for the rich in this present age, charge them to be generous and ready to share. What's the five commands? I want to finish by just drawing out two kind of pastoral observations from the five commands based on verse 19, which I think are supposed to be the motivator to help us to live out these five commands. So, so look at verse, 18, uh, verse 19. Paul says, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Two observations, two pastoral reflections. Number one, living out these five commands is how we who are rich in this present age store up treasure for ourselves in the age to come. So just look very carefully at verses 18 to 19, just look down at the passage or if it's on the screen behind me you can look there, just look very carefully at verses 18 and 19, answer this question, who's benefiting? Who benefits from our doing good, our being rich in good works, our being generous and ready to share? The answer, of course, is others. We do good to others. We're rich in good works toward others. We're generous and ready to share with others. And yet, notice, at the very same time, we store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. You see, very often we naturally think that if I live God's way, if I actually embrace God's purposes for the things that He's given me, it will not, in the end, work out well for me. Paul's saying, if you live for God's glory by being rich in good works and having an open-handed, gospel-hearted generosity toward others, it will, in the end, be for your good. You see, there is, at the end of the day, no conflict between the Christian living for God's glory and God working everything out for the good of the Christian. The God who richly blesses us with everything to enjoy in this age will richly reward us in ways that we can barely imagine in the age to come. A few weeks ago, you might remember Sam mentioned that, you know, just, just imagine uh, if you knew that digital currency was going to take over here in Australia, if you knew that that Bitcoin was going to take off and it was going to become uh, the currency here in Australia, what would you do? Do you know that's actually happened several times in history? So, for example, America hasn't always used US dollars. But they used to have Confederate currency. Randy Alcorn says, just imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War in America. And you're from the north, but you've been fighting down in the south. You now learn that the war is over, or it's about to, be, to, to finish. But while you've been fighting down in the south, you've accumulated all of this Confederate currency. You're looking forward to going home. But you know when you go home, and a new system kicks in place, the Confederate currency is not going to be worth anything. It's going to switch over to US dollars. What would you do? Alcorn says... The smart thing to do would be to keep as little Confederate currency as you can. That is, you, you, would, you, would, you would just use the Confederate currency to live off it 
to enjoy it, but you would also then use as much of the Confederate currency to purchase as many US dollars as you possibly can as a good foundation for the future. I remember when I was a kid, I think I was about 10 years old, I was at my nan's place, uh, hanging out, playing, I think I was in one of her, her sheds, and I came across this old uh, box full of coins that belonged to my grandfather. Uh, I'd never met him, he, he died before I was born, but, but there in this tin, this box, were all of these old coins of his, pennies and half pennies and sixpence and threepence, and as a kid, when you find a box like that, it's pretty exciting. But eventually I learned they really aren't worth anything. Milk bar wouldn't take them, collectors didn't really want them, and banks wouldn't deposit them. Because on February 14th, 1966, Australia switched from imperial currency to the decimal currency of the Aussie dollar. Part of what Paul's doing in this passage is he is saying, there are two ages. There's this present age, but there's an age to come. And a transition is going to happen. Which means that to understand what Paul's saying in this passage, to comprehend the five commands and yet walk out of here and ignore them, would make about as much sense as being alive in the 60s, knowing that a change in currency is going to happen and yet deciding to, to store all of your riches as pennies and half pennies and sixpence and threepence in a shed where one day you know it will become worthless. You see, what Paul's doing in this passage is he's not condemning us for having riches. He's encouraging us not to be short-sighted with what we do with our riches. He wants, to, he wants to help us to know what to do with our riches in this age so that we can look forward to the greater riches of life with God in the age to come. That's the first observation. The second is this, if you look at the purpose clause at the end of verse 19, I think it's very interesting because for some of us, most of us I hope, it will be very encouraging. But there might be some who find it very concerning. So look at the passage, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, and then you get the five subordinate commands. And then Paul goes on to tell, we're told that in doing those, we are thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. Here it is, so that purpose, we may take hold of that which is truly life. I trust many here hear what Paul says there and you think to yourself, or you, or you think about the way that you're using your riches in this present age and you think, I can't wait to take hold of and fully enter into that which is truly life. Eternal life with God in the age to come. But what Paul says here is clearly a corrective to much of contemporary Christianity that wants to believe that you can keep your faith in Jesus separate from how you use your finances. The implication of this passage, I think, is that if you are haughty, if you do place your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, if you do not give yourself to good works, if you aren't rich in good works, 
If you aren't generous and ready to share, then you are not storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future, and you might find that you don't actually take hold of that which is truly life. Now, to be clear, Paul is not teaching here a kind of salvation by good works where we enter into heaven by giving away our wealth. We know that's not the case because of what Paul's already written in in 1 Timothy. For example, back in chapter 1, he says this, this is chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So it's Jesus who saves. We're saved by His good works. We're saved by His coming and living the perfect life that we haven't lived and then dying on a cross as a substitute, bearing the the right wrath of God against our sin and our rebellion against Him. And He was raised from the dead so that everyone who turns from living life their own way and trusts in Him might have that which is truly life. Life with Him in the age to come. We are saved by Jesus' good works, not by our imperfect good works, especially our imperfect works at being generous. We all know how imperfect our works are. In 1 Timothy 1.16, we're told that it's those who believe in Christ for eternal life who are saved. In 1 Timothy 2.6, we're told that Christ Jesus came and gave himself as a ransom for all. But here's the thing. When, a person, when, when Jesus actually saves a sinner when he ransoms them from their former way of life, when someone actually turns from living life their own way and believes in him for eternal life, they're having eternal life always evidenced itself in new ways of living now. Think about it. I, could, I could stand up here all day. There's a, a, a guy called Chris Braun who wrote a book on forgiveness a few years ago. He mentioned something like this in his book. I could stand up here all day and hold lemons in my hand, and you would know that does not make me a lemon tree. I could stand here all morning and bark like a dog. You would think that's weird, but you'd know he's not a dog. And yet, it is indeed characteristic of lemon trees that they do hold lemons, and of dogs that they really do bark. You could spend your whole life being generous and ready to share. You could give away your worldly wealth and be rich in good works and try and earn your salvation, but it wouldn't work. It wouldn't actually make you a Christian. It wouldn't save you because it wouldn't undo any of the sin that you've already done. It wouldn't change your heart so that you would find joy in enjoying the things that God has given you in the way that God intends and it wouldn't reconcile you to God. It wouldn't ransom you to God. The one God has said that there is one mediator between him and us, and it's not money. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for sinners like us. But here's the thing. It is indeed characteristic of someone who really is a Christian, who really has been saved by Jesus and ransomed by him and believed in him for eternal life, that they will, with God's help, use their riches in this age to do good. To be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. You see, if you go through life caring only about riches in this age, life in this age, what Paul's saying 
is that it's not that you're, desire, you're desiring too much. It's that you're actually desiring too little. There's that famous quote you'll know from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, where he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and you could add money when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who goes on wanting to make mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, instruct them. Don't equate wealth with worth. Keep the location of your hope in the right place. Be committed to doing good. Strive to be rich in the right way. And be generous and ready to share. And you will store up for yourself treasure as a good foundation for the future so that you, we, might take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. Father, give us wisdom to know how to live richly in this age, so that we might enjoy life with you in the age to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.